If you are taught the fundamentals of finance and money management in school, this limited series podcast tackles the basics all students need to know to become financially independent. Made by students for students. On this episode, we discuss Professor of Marketing Scott Galloway's latest book titled Post Corona. Welcome to episode 11 of the Money Class Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Money Class Podcast. My name is Costa. And this is Mark. And today... (laughs) Today we have Scott with us as well. (laughs) In spirit. Well, we are talking about um, a book, a book we both read and we both really enjoyed called Post Corona by Scott Galloway. Now, for those of you who don't know Scott Galloway, he started a few businesses. He's a NYU... What is it? Stern Business School? NYU Stern Business School? Professor of Marketing. And uh, yeah, he's a very interesting guy. He's had a lot of experience and a lot of success in his career. He sold a bunch of businesses for millions of dollars. He's been on the board, one of the board of directors for the New York Times, Urban Outfitters, uh, I think even the Berkeley Business School. So he has a lot of experience and he's, uh, he's built a following on the internet because of his books. He has two more books. One's called The Four and the other one's called The Algebra of Happiness. And we just really, both both Mark and I really enjoy what he has to say. So we just wanted to dive deeper into this book. And we think it has a lot of interesting things to say about the future of the economy and just the world uh, after co- the coronavirus is over. So Mark, take it away. Uh, you're the one leading this discussion. Let me know. Exactly. So thanks also for the introduction. And I think you really prefaced it well by explaining who Professor Scott Galloway is, um, but also what the book talks about. And the book really talks about, you know, the economy and the world in which we're living today and where we're going to be going to the future. It's a, it's a, it's a topic that's, you know, been intriguing to me or for, to a lot of people is that we know where we are today. We're wearing masks, we're social distancing, but you know what? We're working from home, we're doing school, we have a uh, you know, we're, we're all taking part inside college, uh, a video game called college, uh, <laughs> you know, college Zoom classes. Um, so it's, you know, where is this going to go in the future? And I think throughout this book, this really he dives deep into this. And, you know, I want to start off really with the preface of the book um, or the, um, excuse me, uh, my English teacher would be really mad at me if I can't remember what the introduction of a book. Uh, the prologue? I think, prologue, well, right? yeah, preface, pl- prologue, introduction, they all kind of mean the same thing when it comes, same things I when it comes a, to books. Yeah, I think it's for a novel though, a prologue. I don't think you can have a prologue of like a, maybe, I don't know. Honestly, as uh, one of my majors is English literature and I should know this, but I don't. Uh, <laughs> so we'll just go with either or. <laughs> so, so yeah, so the first one goes in the introduction of the book and, yeah. and it's a page uh, XVI for everyone who has the book with them. So page six, I feel like I'm at the Oprah book <laughs> so much fun. Um, and it speaks about the great acceleration and how the pandemic has accelerated trends that have been present in the world at a way that's unprecedented. And the example that he gives, or at least the quote that he takes from, from Lenin, is that nothing can happen for decades and then decades can happen in weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think a very, a very you know, profound example is how Apple took 42 years to reach $1 trillion in market cap, and then it took 20 weeks to get to $2 trillion. Let me repeat that again. It took, four, it took four decades to get to $1 trillion, and then it took four months, or five months, rather, to get from one to two. So that's one trend that he spoke, spoke about. But he also speaks about other habits that have been taking decades to develop, and that haven't really gained traction, all of a sudden, we're all doing it. And I think, you know, I, I, if you want to, you know, kind of brainstorm what you think, Costa, but, you know, well, not brainstorm, but if you want to bring up one of the trends, 
um, like whether it be online learning and speak about that, and then I'll, I'll continue on um, from there. So how do you see the trends developing in a way that was, you know, that, that echoing what he's saying about the decades of nothing happening and then decade in a few weeks? Well, you know, when he says any, the, the idea that everything is exponential or that, you know, nothing can happen and then something really drastic can happen and just change everything. I think that's a, that, that's a lesson that can be implied to anything anybody does to just, you know, try and get better at basically just think, okay, I'll give you examples. I think it was Warren Buffett and one of his like um, co-workers who said this, but essentially they said it's really hard to get from zero dollars to one thousand or zero dollars to a hundred thousand in net worth. It's very, very hard. But then once you have that 100K, it becomes a lot easier to get the next 100K. Right. So going from Mm -hmm. zero to one is always a lot harder than going from maybe. 100,000 to 200,000 or 1 trillion to 2 trillion because you have a lot more resources you have a lot more foundation to build upon to you know basically one up yourself every time and that's just how it goes that's how I've always seen things Uh, whether it be learning a new skill or just like making money or anything really Um, Mm -hmm. and like you said your example the example of Apple's uh, market cap I think it proves it right there but it's even about like you know I wanted okay when I wanted to learn about editing right I didn't know how to edit videos. I didn't know what to do. It took me, and I think I've said this before in the podcast, it might have taken me like 10 hours to just learn how to import videos and chop them up and like put some music because I didn't know how the software worked. But now if I want to do the same thing, it'll take me probably less than five minutes to do everything. And that's a Mm -hmm. huge difference. And that's just because I went ahead and put 10 hours of my life into just focusing on doing that one very frustrating little task that now just becomes seamless to me. And that goes into anything, mm-hmm. even thinking, even studying. So that's something to that, that I've been thinking a lot about. And it's not just about the pandemic, it's about everything. So that's what I think about well, it. Well, it's the exponential effect of, you know, putting your efforts and everything gets easier the more you do, or where you go. Um, I want to bring it a bit, I want to bring it back a bit more to the point that he's making here, which is how, you know, pandemic has served as an accelerator. Yeah. And at page 17, he speaks about how from the beginning of March 2020 to the middle of April, Online grocery sales increased roughly 90%, while food delivery sales melted up 50%. Mm-hmm. So essentially, you know, food delivery has been has been there for decades, right? There's been, well, maybe not decades, but there's been, you know, I've got a friend who's, uh, whose parents have been working in a food deliver- a grocery delivery, and it just never really was taking off um, because it just, there wasn't a need for it. But a lot of a sudden, there was a, everyone had a need where they were staying at home or where they were going to be using the, you know, technology to do something. So the trend that was online deliveries of groceries automatically took off. I think the antithesis, the antithesis, oh antithesis. my god, I think the oh, antithesis to that is how streaming video in the late 1990s were starting to gain traction. Well, you know there was some proof of concepts, but nothing really took off, and that's because the technology was almost ahead of its time, and there wasn't this accelerative effect like there was in the pandemic which would have allowed you know, tech, you know, online streaming to grow. And arguably what did allow it to grow was faster internet connections, which means that you could you know, stream videos on demand versus waiting, them, waiting for them to download. So I think that's one incredible aspect of, of, of coronavirus is that you know, trends that have been developing slowly all of a sudden had a kink in their, in their, in their development. So going from you know, steady to all of a sudden rapid increase, or and if downwards. they were positioned at the right place at the right time, 
or downwards, exactly. If they're positioned well, in that case, you know, they're either doing extremely well or they're doing extremely poorly. Yeah, there's something to I want to add to that. I think in 2019 or the end of 2019, there was a lot of speculation. A lot of people thought that uh, Uber was going to exit the food delivery service industry and kind of sell that branch of their company because uh, it was not efficient. It was not profitable. They didn't really see a, a big future in that industry, right? But instead, mm -hmm. even I think Scott Galloway predicted that Uber was going to leave the Uber Eats and sell it off. But instead, what happened is that Uber doubled down on Uber Eats and made it a huge chunk of their business and just like made sure that it was successful because they saw what happened at, with the coronavirus. So it just made sense for them to continue on with that business. Right. So it's yeah. not just it wasn't just about accelerators. It was also about uh, maybe a shift in focus for companies. Right. And even I yeah. think when you, we yeah. talk about extremes, another thing I want to point out, because we talk about companies, but it's also for the individuals. There's been a lot of research done and I, I, we can put some articles uh, for proof in the in the in the description if people want. But um, inequality, you know, in America specifically, how it grew exponentially. We hear about how the, mm -hmm. the billionaires like I think the huge majority of the American billionaires added trillions of dollars to their net worth compared to how the minimum wage just stayed the same, right? And yet everything yeah. just got more expensive with time. So there are these things that like kind of like showed us, I guess you could say some of the negative aspects of what like the coronavirus can do that's much more important than I'd say just the market cap of a company. So I just wanted to- Yeah, absolutely. No, that absolutely. And you brought an interesting point, which I think it's gonna lead us to the next, the, the next topic of discussion about how Uber's business model is one that's absolutely genius. Um, or at least that's able to survive in time of pandemic. So I'm going to give an example. You have two travel companies or travel-oriented companies. You have Air Canada and you have Expedia. We could, I think we can all agree that they're both companies who are struggling over during the pandemic, but there's one company that's struggling much more than the other. And I can tell you it's not the tech company. And why is that? Well, the Professor Galloway says that... Um, that okay wait i'm sorry um that that the biggest move or the best position for companies now and going forward is one that is capital light and, and that we, meaning that it has a lot of variable has a variable cost structure and not a fixed cost structure so what does that mean well that means that if all of a sudden there are no flight there are no airplanes in the in the sky the fix the company with the fixed cost has a lot of overhead that they have to keep supplying. They have to be keep paying, whereas the other one that doesn't have all this overhead um, and is able to cut down on its costs rapidly is going to be the one surviving. And that's evident in the travel industry with Air Canada or any of the other cruise ships. Um, there's the was it Ocean? Oh, no, I'm trying to remember what the acronym is, uh, but it's like uh, you know the casinos, the um, the, 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 the casinos, resorts, cruise ships. Um, and and airlines resorts are all struggling because they have so much overhead. They have so much so many costs. And then a company like Uber, which has a lot of variable costs, and is a maybe it's going to be a model for the future, um, is able to stay lean and, and and to get out of the pandemic stronger than than the way that than when they came in. Yeah, there's something there to point out. Uber's employees are technically contractors. They're not. Yeah, they're not, they're not employees. They're exactly. they're uh, they're self-employed. They're self-employed. Look, that's what the law you're an says. Entrepreneur. But, <laughs> well, that's what the law <laughs> says. For, that's why Uber is protected. Like they could literally just, you know, 
they, they, they don't have to go by, by the laws and the unions and all of that stuff because they have the power to just say, these are contractors, you guys do what you want. You're using our app, it's a service for you and for the people who actually want to get from point A to point B. Um, so yeah, yeah. That's, that's very important. And I think I, I even heard it on the news, when you look at a company like Airbnb, tech company in the real estate market, um, who's the one that suffered in the pandemic? Airbnb might have lost money because people weren't booking a, a lot of uh, apartments or, or houses because nobody was going on vacation. But the people who owned the houses that were using Airbnb to get their clients, they were the ones that really suffered because they saw a decline in revenue yeah. and they were the ones that had to maintain the houses and no one was paying their rent. So that's, you know, that's who the ones who had the, the, the cost or were the ones that suffered. But that's the Expedia model, the the idea. And if anyone was interesting, they could look it up. And it's absolutely, you know, the brilliant pieces online speaking about the Expedia model. And that is to be just the middleman or just matching the customers from the ones who are providing the services and just being there and just facilitating the transaction. And I think that that's the very, that's, that's the leanest position. That's the safest position. And it's the one that allows you to scale in a way like none other. That's tech Because companies. that's what tech allows them. Exactly, and that's exactly what higher education—the pivot in higher, the pivot within higher education, um, with working from home, with online online schooling—is the fact that now tech allows a scalability in the education system. And, I, I wanna, and before I read a passage, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead before I yeah, before, uh, before I read a passage. When you said middleman, I just want to kind of like clarify what what that means. It's more like Expedia, Airbnb, Uber, all of these companies. What they do is that they just become databases for their specific industry databases for you to connect with a driver a database for you to search and connect with a certain uh, owner of an apartment right so that's mm -hmm. a very specific yeah. thing that i think gives them the, the the power google it's a database for you to search information you know it's think of it as an encyclopedia or just a library that's all they're literally doing but the only reason they're big companies is because everybody goes to them to be able to act to, to, to them so they can like they give them the information to so they can have the power to make sure that you're the one that's being seen or not is that making any sense mm -hmm. so i just wanted to point that yeah, out yeah no continue no but you know i was gonna we were gonna i was gonna bring up the the idea of higher education but you bring up a very interesting point that i think we could touch on right now since it's also closer to the section in that book so might as well and it's the red versus blue business model and it, there's two essentially there's two different business models um, but let me, but, but if I quote from here, um, it's, you have one, so one, a company can sell stuff for more than the cost of making it. So think of like Apple that sells their $1,200 phones, their, their $400 phones for $1,200. And there's the other type of company that could give stuff away or sell it below cost and charge other companies for access to its products, which is the customer's behavioral data. So that's pretty much the the bifurcation in the world of tech. Um, and what does that really mean in practice? Well, in practice, essentially saying you're you're trying to figure out who is the product in this in the in this economy. You've got either the actual product or service, which could be in this case a paid subscription model, more expensive, like an Apple phone, like an versus an Android phone, Netflix, Netflix versus YouTube, uh, LinkedIn versus Facebook. Then you have the other one, which is free to use. So isn't that amazing? But if something is free to use, you have to ask yourself, well, then who's the actual product in this equation? And then you get into, okay, the, you know, 
Android, which is you know a bit less private. Um, we have YouTube, which sells your data. You have Facebook that sells your data again. And all of a sudden, the product itself is not the actual website or the actual service you, you're using. The product becomes yourself because you're the one that's making, you're helping these companies you know, profit from them. Gus, I know you're very opinionated about the subject. Uh, <laughs> well, we- and 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 what would you you know what would you like to kind of talk about how you know the difference is a bit between between these two models? Well, we did do an entire podcast last week on the big tech and privacy, and I think it kind of summarizes everything you just spoke about. Um, and look, I am a big advocate for uh, privacy, especially in, in the, the the internet, the cyber world, anything related to technology, just because I'm very Um, I've done a lot of research on the topic, and I just think it's something Mm -hmm. people need to keep in mind, right? Uh, Do you want to sell your data to companies so they can then sell you a product, or do you want to pay for a premium, uh, a very similar service, but without the ads, without them taking your information and using it to to sell it to uh, companies, right? So, yeah, look, it's uh, I think Scott Galloway even said this. Um, When you're on Netflix... No, sorry. When was the last time Netflix ever pissed you off while you were using its product? Versus when was the last time something like Twitter or Facebook pissed you off when you were using its product? And often it had to do because by you being the customer and them wanting to keep you on the website, what happened was that they would put content in front of you that would play with your emotions so you can comment on other people's posts more, like more stuff, stay on the product more often, so they can collect more data on you, make more money from you, and the cycle continues. And that's why a lot of us are addicted to these apps. Netflix, it's addictive because it's good storytelling from you know a TV show, and that's pretty much it. But nothing's gonna become, Netflix will not do anything just to, to make you react in a certain way that makes you want to stay on the app longer for the sake of selling ads, that's the big difference. So that's why you never get well, pissed no ads when you on watch Netflix. Netflix. Exactly, because you're just paying a premium price, right? But that's, that's the big difference. It's the ads. And the, if you have ads or not, or if you're the product or not, it will play with your emotions. And even more, it will maybe uh, shift your behavior. And that's more of a long-term thing where I think big tech is going to be a big player in how they shift customers' behaviors through the data they collect from them. That's dangerous. Hmm. It's all about control. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's interesting because a lot of these services also have, um, you know, for these ads, they have opt-outs. Um, opt-out forms or opt-out um, options as opposed to opt-in, right? So, um, so essentially, you know, when when you're subscri- when you're subscribing, not subscribing, but when you're making a new account, whether it be on Facebook, on YouTube, or any of these free services, essentially, you're automatically being opt-in, um, you know, to be getting targeted advertising, and and that's kind of a problem um, because in that case, you know, because the co- companies want as many people on, in the program as possible, which is why it's opt out and not an opt-in format, right? So a few years ago, there was a um, legislation that was passed in Canada where all newsletters would have to be opt-in only. And all of a sudden, you know, the amount of spam that one would receive inside their mailbox was dramatically reduced because people had to consent to getting these information sent toward, to them. Uh, and and, and be, having it being opt-in means that as a consumer, we have a choice. Now, the problem is, the problem in tech is a fact that we're, we're we're lagging behind the legislation for advertising because the 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 because what is currently in laws 
um, you know, were, were made when ads were being sent over on, when ads were placed on billboards newspapers. and uh, in your public sack. Yeah. And newspapers. So you, you can, you know, you could target a newspaper, but you can't target as well as, as you could do on Facebook, which knows that I'm a male between 18 to 24, currently, you know, at, and, and, you know, lives in Montreal, goes to Concordia and has an interest for finance and, and randoms, you know, like, you know, these companies know a lot more about you. And not necessarily bad at the beginning, but the problem is that then they could be feeding you advertising and they could be swaying, you know, electoral results by showing you different, uh, by showing you advertisers that would, um, advertisements that would privilege your point of view. Yeah, I just want to add one more thing, but uh, we, we I don't want to go too in-depth on big tech and privacy. Yeah, people can watch the we... other episode. But uh, a big thing people need to think, and I, I'm starting to realize this, I recently bought a Fitbit. And I bought it before Fitbit got sold to Google, and I was like, "Damn, I didn't like I I wouldn't have bought it if it was bought by Google." But that happened afterwards. And what was interesting was that I started to realize companies like Apple started getting into the wearable industry, right? With the Apple Watch, mm-hmm. companies like Google started buying companies like Fitbit, so they can get into the wearable industry. And why is that? Now you see, these companies already know a lot about you, maybe through what information you search on the internet. Do maybe Apple knowing? Um, Apple having the control over uh, your basically your the, the your electronics usage through the hardware they sell you and make you stay into that ecosystem with the AirPods, with the, the MacBooks, the iPhones. Now, what's interesting is that they have that information, but they want to get more information from you. So why not get into the wearables? Get into the health, right? Apple's heavily uh, targeting. Uh, aren't, the aren't they? Aren't they? Uh... Don't they have the social interest in mind getting to the health industry? Well, you, you know, the Apple Watch, <laughs> when it first released, it wasn't uh, marketed as a health product. As like, hey, get this, lose weight, fitness, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, get your calories, like counts up. Uh, it was really about just, hey, this is a cool new piece of a technology that's going to replace uh, your iPhone. So you don't have to check it as often or whatever the case was. But then Tim Cook started shifting its, uh, its marketing to making it more about health because they want to get that data. They want to know what kind of person you are. Are you? Uh, do you walk a lot? Do you run a lot? Do you work out a lot? Uh, what kind of weight? Uh, what's your weight? What's your height? What's your blah, blah, blah? What they can know through that is that, hey, maybe you're more likely to get diabetes in the future. And what's crazy is that they will know that before you even know it. So maybe hmm. with that information, they can use that, sell it to advertisers and make you, and I don't know, have chocolate ads appear uh, on your feed more often because they know you <laughs> you really like chocolate because you barely work out. Uh, you're probably overweight. Uh, it looks like you're going like to have judgment diabetes. of values. <laughs> no, but it could be either or, either way or, or, you know, that's what I'm trying to say is that they get into like this industry because there's a bigger implication than just, hey, I'm going to wear a product so it can help me lose weight. That's just something I want to keep in mind. And I know it's a big tangent, but anyways, yeah. let's go back into the <laughs> Professor no, Galloway. But, but you know what? But you know, that's a flywheel. You know, that's a flywheel that you're that you're getting into in the Apple flywheel. It's that, you know, the app, the, the, the watch being an extension of your phone, your phone being an extension of your personal computer. And that's really the flywheel of the ecosystem that Apple is preaching. And the other type of ecosystem, which he dives deep to inside his book at page 41, 44, sorry, is about Amazon. And that's essentially the Amazon Prime flywheel. And that's what is a it? Beast. Let's, uh, it's an incredible thing, you know. That I, I'm only going to touch on a few of the aspects, um, but essentially, 
you you subscribe to Amazon Prime. By the way, there's more. I think there's like one in three households in the U.S. have Amazon Prime. Like I, I think I, I forget what the stat is, but I think there's more people that have Amazon Prime than believe in G, than believe in uh, in Jesus Christ in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's about a hundred million like people. A hundred million people in uh, in the U.S. have Amazon Prime, which is absolutely mind blowing. But that's a different. So I never thought. I never knew how big it was. <laughs> uh, but the Amazon flywheel is essentially your rational brain. So the thing, think you have two brains, and this is something I saw in my in my behavioral finance class. Is you have an intu- you have a quick thinking, intuitive or irrational brain, rather one that makes decisions on the fly, and you have the other brain, which is the rational, more you know that 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 makes decisions based on what is maximizing to your happiness, what is the best decision, like a utilitarian type of brain, right? So you have the thinking one and you have the irrational one. And what Amazon Prime does is it hooks you in with the rational saying you're going to get better shipments, you're going to get better better products, faster shipping. And then what they do is all of a sudden you have, oh, so you, you're, you could justify to yourself rationally. And then all of a sudden you have all these videos that you could watch and all these movies and TV shows. And you get attached through your irrational brain with your emotions to the you know to these videos and to these characters on TV whom you identify with prime music so prime stuff, so video exactly so so what they're essentially doing is using your rational brain to get you to get the product and then using your irrational brain your irrational brain to keep you will keep you hooked yeah. and that's an absolutely genius model um, which if no one has ever thought about it you know you know and hopefully you know this is the you know if this is the first time you are being this is being brought up. Um, it's something to think about. Then it's like, wow, okay, they really did something well, and that's why some services, you know, are having trouble getting you, hooking you on because they're not able to just they're not able to cater to both of these um, both of these uh, systems inside your brain, which means it's more difficult to hook you in and to keep you. Let me give a more concrete example, just to clarify what you're saying yeah, there. You watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or The Boys or Fleabag on Amazon, uh, on Prime Video will make you more likely to go ahead and buy an Amazon Basics product through the Amazon website. And the only because rationality there Prime. is because hey, you have Amazon Prime, but also you watch something on Amazon Video, which taps into that emotion, right? And then through that, you'll go ahead and you're more likely to buy a toaster off of Amazon. It's an example uh, Scott Galloway gives just yeah. because it's tied to the emotion even though that toaster is no different than the toaster you buy off of walmart or off of like a, a mom and pop store next to your house so yeah mm-hmm. it's insane that was no, a very right. bri- brilliant when i when i first really thought about it and i'm like wow it makes a lot more sense i mean why would apple start a tv uh, a apple tv plus right a lot of it has to do with what amazon's doing and i want to point out one more thing about amazon prime which really got me thinking even more was Take an industry like Hollywood, right? Netflix, Amazon, Apple, all of these companies, basically the tech industry, big tech, is using Hollywood and it's featurizing it. Featurizing it, making it, meaning Prime is a big bundle of different products, right? So they're going to tap into an industry like Hollywood because there's a lot of money to be made and make it a feature of their bigger product that is Amazon Prime. So what mm-hmm. they could do now is, okay, they had tapped into the, the entertainment industry, sucked all the money off of that, up their market cap, made it a part of a prime. There's the delivery industry, you know, they're the, the, taking away all the FedEx, UPS, uh, um, I guess you could say, revenue stream. 
there's now Amazon's getting into the vaccine or medical industry through delivering the vaccine faster to people because they have access to 100 million prime members. So they're tapping into the healthcare revenue and featurizing healthcare through their prime bundle. And it's just going to grow, 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 making them have this huge control over a huge chunk of the population's uh, um, like money because they're creating their own mini economy in that ecosystem. Makes sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think you know, what's important is, um, actually I just got the share of the US households right here. I'll, I'll speak about that right after. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's, you know, what's important is that they're essentially becoming you know, these, an unregulated, unregulated monopoly mm -hmm. where they're able to tap into all these different sectors um, and essentially have mono monopolistic powers because they're, able, because they're saying, who's gonna compete against me? Who in their right mind is going to start an online shopping, uh, you know, sh shopping website, online shopping website? That's e a pretty smart statement, Mark. E-commerce website, have fulfillment, uh, and try to get you know video on demand at the same time. No one is going to try to to to, conquer, to to go against that because Amazon is going to is going to win. And when you dissuade new entrants from getting to a market, in that case, we have an anti a monopolistic company. Um, inside the market. And I think it's the, part, it's the job of legislators and of governments in order to say, hey, 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 we have to break up these big tech companies, not because we're punishing them, but simply because we want to enhance competition and we want to keep you know, the product and services at a good level. And the reason why you want that is so that an industry is able to continue adding value, increasing price, but that's fine, but also adding value at the same time. And that's what we call um, an industry that is ripe for disruption. Okay, we're back. We just had to set up our cameras again. What were you saying, Mark? Yeah, so I was going to talk about disruptors. And let me read page 81 of the Scott Galloway book. Um, not the entire page, don't worry. <laughs> I'm not that literate. Um, so the opportunity for disruption in an industry could be correlated to a handful of factors. A disruptability index. The key signal is a dramatic increase, increase in price with no accompanying increase in value or innovation. This is also known as under the margin. Now, what is a, you know, I'll let you have one guess, Costa, and you've read the books, so you know exactly what you're going to be guessing. Um, but what is one industry that has increased in price? Let's talk about the U.S. because Canada is a bit less of the case, but, you know, it still has a certain... Well, even Canada. Canada. A bit less in Canada. Yeah. Even Canada, but not as bad. Um, what is industry, an industry that has increased its price exponentially, but hasn't given that much value? You wanna you wanna try yeah. one little guess, Costa? <laughs> the good old industry of education. <laughs> education, excellent. And you, okay, you're right. And just to point it out, so since we, since 1978 and 2020, so in the 30, 42 years, um, college tuition in the U.S. has increased 1,400 percent, while the CPI, so the Consumer Price Index, has increased a mere 294 percent. Okay, now what does that actually mean? Well, healthcare, which is a big topic of discussion in the states, over the same time only only increased by six hundred percent. So, if a if a if a can of Coke cost one dollar in nineteen seventy eight, today it would have cost three dollars. Not too bad, right? Um, if a can of Coke cost one dollar in nineteen seventy eight, if it was education, it would today cost fourteen dollars. That's kind of what what we're saying here. Uh, mm -hmm. what we're saying here. Um, Actually, you know, the, that's pretty much what we're saying here. Actually, the can of Coke, the first example, would be worth $4. Um, $4 but anyways, um, 
that's kind of what we're saying. And that that's a that's an area that's meant to be to have disruption. And I think, you know, COVID has allowed us going back to the theme of post corona. Um, COVID has allowed us to 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 see an acceleration in online education because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, education is here as a social purpose, right? It's here to bring up, you know, the the the, the it's there to lift the population um, so that people who are maybe in a in less fortunate um, circumstances could get to the you know to get to higher you know to, to get to higher wage and getting you know um, great opportunities through education. I want to. I just want to clarify. It's more. Go ahead. I think from for a government, it's more. You want to take someone, educate them, make them very competent in a field, so they can have higher wages, so they can pay more taxes, so the government can get more revenue. That's the actual truth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, and you know, while the government is is increasing spending in a lot of different areas in the economy, education is one where they've lacked spending, especially in the U.S. Canada, not as much to an extent. Um, but the benefits we're going to be reaping are going to be the same as, as I think, in the States. And, and that is, you know, talking about the scalability of the classroom. So if we're assuming that we want to increase the revenue of taxation while also serving a social purpose, then tech within higher education allows to do both because you're able to do two things. You're able to have anyone go to the classroom, you know, whether I live in um, the metropolitan area of Montreal, or I live in the suburb, or you know, further suburbs, or I live really on the other side um, uh, of the planet, I could essentially be following the same curriculum as you and I, uh, while also doing it in a, in a way that could be less costly, because the marginal cost now of an extra student has been reduced from a certain fixed amount of seats in a classroom to a infinite amount of online participants. Yeah, um, you know, it's a uh... Professor Gallery gives an example there. Uh, I think one of his classes or his most popular class, I think it's called The Four, and it's about Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple. Um, he feels, for he tries to, you know, it's very popular at, at NYU, and he usually fills up the class. But what that means is that NYU will give him access to the biggest auditorium they have, which is somewhere, let's say, let's say, for example, it's 150 people. I think it's something like that. And, you know, NYU is getting like $50,000 per student for their tuition uh, per year. Mm-hmm. And a fraction of that goes per class, right? That you divide that to, based on the amount of classes per student. Five classes, five classes, yeah. 10 grand per class. And and he, like, Professor Gallery did like the, 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 the math and he like provides, I think he takes about 7,000, no, I think it's $100,000 uh, per night that he makes NYU based on the tuition people pay, something like that. And what was interesting That's is that crazy. he says now, because everything is online and he's basically teaching at Zoom University, even though it's NYU, and because it's a popular class that usually, usually fills up to the capacity of the auditorium, now he's able to have maybe 300 students instead of 150. And because NYU hasn't really done anything about the tuition, NYU is just making more money off of that one class because you know it's popular and he can get more people because Zoom is the technology. You can have as many people as you want technically. And disruptability, mm-hmm. you mentioned it. Hey, look, um, we can all agree that although Zoom University is like, a, we're technically at Concordia University, but Zoom University doesn't necessarily have the same benefits or the same uh, value as something in person for a lot of people. Granted, it gives you more time to do other things and maybe focus on side projects, but uh, it made us realize that maybe something like a Coursera, which can have you know a very similar class to what you're lo- learning in university, and what which only costs say three hundred dollars for a semester, 
uh, it can give you a lot of the same value as you know going to Concordia and spending uh, thousands of dollars for a specific class or more like the United States but, but Concordia then, we don't do that yeah but we're a bit more we're a bit like you're in Canada but then you know why has a master class in that case you know dominated the education market because master, you know, why isn't you know because, because? masterclass.com is not real school masterclass.com what they do is that they hire a big name celebrity like Martin Scorsese or mm -hmm. Anne Leibovitz, I forget, I think that's her name. Uh, uh, like famous photographers, famous directors, or Gordon Bob Ramsay, Iger, Bob or, Iger you know, famous CEO. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay. And they just have, like, they compose a four-hour class where they just explain their story and how they got to where they were. And it feels more like an interview than anything that's just filmed in a very fancy way. And then the homework is literally go buy this book, read this book, and then discuss it in the forums. I think that's very different from, hey, buy this textbook, let's learn something, you know, really focused for 16 weeks where you have to do homework, you got to learn about the calculus, like, the, you need to use calculus to learn about economic concepts. That's a lot more detailed, that's a lot harder to do than just listen to an interview, right? So that's the very big difference. Masterclass doesn't have that value. Coursera a little bit more, but even then, it's maybe it hasn't gone to, to you know, the best of its uh, of its potential, but there's a lot of yeah. potential there. And so it, it really depends on the quality. I don't think a teacher and a celebrity uh, offers the same thing when it comes to education. Because we're hoping that education will teach you how to become the celebrity versus the, you know, the masterclass is just, you know, letting you consume from what the celebrity has to say. I think that's the main, I think that's the main driving force from, from what you're saying. And, and is that, you know, the masterclass is almost like a Netflix. It's like a, um, you know, it's like when I used to tell my parents I'm playing educational games on my on my iPod Touch. Yeah. You know, as educational as the games may have been, may have been, it felt more like play than anything else. And I think Masterclass is about in the same line. It's your, your, your it's like a pseudo, like a like a pseudo education where you feel like you're getting education, you're learning something, but in reality, it's a bit hard to come out of the class and say, oh, this is really what I what, what I learned. Yeah, and, and that's I, the bit of the issue there. Exactly. And I just want to point out, like, uh, I don't think we're talking out of our asses here, because especially me, I've taken masterclass courses. I've taken like three of them. I've taken I, probably, I think, 15 Coursera courses. And I've taken Concordia University courses. And I've done Concordia in person and on Zoom. And I know like the very big difference because I've done it before. And I'm sure you've taken some, right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, so again... Uh, just just before you do it just think about what you're actually getting and think about the packaging of how they're actually like you know what what they're marketing to you more than anything you know it's really masterclass yeah, looks very yeah. fancy and it looks really cool because they have that money to make the production look nice but is it really worth the value of what you're actually getting inside more than the branding of it all you know it, it's akin to you know should i i won't say it's like watching a netflix like show but it's like watching a documentary. Or you know, there's a lot watching of free, an interview. There's a documentary. You know, there's a lot of really good research, you know, educational resources like Khan Academy, let's say. Yeah, um, that's good. You know, online, which actually teach you tangible. But the problem with these is that there aren't credential. These aren't credentials that are necessarily um, recognized by you know hiring by by um, by, by by school by um, by different businesses. And I think that's really what is needed so that this online education platform takes off. Is you know for Apple or for you know Google to say okay we recognize um, your courses that you've taken online and if you take you know a certain amount of credits of these online courses in that case you know it's a, it's exactly the same as having a bachelor degree that would be disruptive right there 
that would be that would be that would be disruptive exactly yeah um because all of a sudden you know what you're doing online actually has a merit and until you don't have bcom you know on your cv a lot of employers may say oh so all you have is a you know high school diploma or cgep you know designation qualifications you don't have you know uh, you haven't been to university higher education even though you've taken all these online classes yeah i think that's kind of we need we need we need the recognition um, for stuff that are other than just the diploma in order for, you know, I think online education and different um, sources to really take off. Go ahead. Uh, no, you're, you're totally right. And, uh, you know, that's, I often tell myself this, and I hate saying this because it doesn't sound pretty, but at the end of the day, university, we're here for the credentials. We, I don't think a lot of people care about what they're actually going to learn. Granted, you l- will learn a lot. But uh, most people do it for the credentials. And I think it's very relevant, especially for our uh, generation. We've realized that uh, the value we're getting from an educational perspective isn't that impressive at university. We've learned this through Zoom University, too. It's nothing impressive at all. Like, I can get this right now on the Internet for free. And I've done that before. I I buy a textbook because I I love the subject. And I just read about it. And... I've probably learned more through that than through just doing a class because a class will make me have to like, you know, study for exams instead of actually learning about a topic. And there's a very big difference between studying to get a good grade versus studying to learn about something. And that's something I've realized through my my time in university. So the big value there is you're paying for the credential. That's why everybody's, especially in the States, that's why students continue to pay $50,000 for online Zoom University because they can put NYU on their CV and employees find that impressive. Employees like that; they see value. That's the difference. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, um, Scott Galloway has has made up this formula for to know to know how valuable your education is, and this this will lead into our la- our, our our last topic of discussion. Um, but it's credentials plus education plus experience divided divided by tuition. So I'm going to be very uh, I'm going to lack creativity, and I'm just going to read. I'm just going to give you the examples he gives. <laughs> Um, so credentials are the lane the, the lane you are in sorry the lane you are put in in post graduation based on the brand and school you attend. So that's pretty so that's the first part in, in the top part so the CE plus C, credentials education experience divided by tuition. So the first one is credentials. How much how much uh, glamour or, or what does it mean if you say you went to a specific school? How do different employers or how do different people? perceive that value add and I, that's credentials that's the first part the second one is the education so learning for, for you know learning and stuff and the last one is experience so fall leaves football games falling in love going to parties um you know being part of clubs and those three things have to be divided by education uh, by tuition sorry in order for you to see you know the real value so imagine you have you know a school that has terrible credentials but has the same education as you know Harvard and same as same um, same experience as, as as an Ivy you know as a Harvard, but then you're paying as much as a Harvard. Well, you're not going to want to go there because the credentials aren't as strong. And now the problem with Zoom University is that okay, you could get the credentials, the education let's say is ninety percent of the same, but you're losing all the experience, and all of a sudden the pendulum on which this 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 um, equation is sitting on is relying on. It's completely swayed to the not worth it to go to school or not worth it to pursue my studies this semester because tuition, you can't justify paying your tuition 
without the experience, let's say, which is such a big factor, which is one third of the factor, you know, as to why you're going to go to school. Yeah, there is a statistic. I think it's about 20% of uh, um, yeah. first year students at uh, Ivy Leagues. I don't know about the rest of America, but it's probably the same thing. They decided to defer to next year. In the fall of 2020, they were like, actually, I'm just going to defer. And what happened is that com- uh, uh, schools like uh, Princeton and, and Harvard, what they had to do is dig deep into their deferred list, dig deep into what could have been a rejection for a student and accept them so they can keep the, the same amount of revenue going for this year. And what's just going to happen is that that student who got accepted, who's you know probably the top of the list, is just going to start in the fall of 2021 at the school. Granted, COVID guidelines might change the experience, but at least they'll be around people. And college have tried to keep that experience, uh, uh, the experience aspect of, of their, uh, of the value uh, proposition through like, you know, bringing the students back into their dorms and having them stay with other students in the same dorm so they can at least have some contact with some mm-hmm. people. And, you know, you could argue that it maybe hasn't worked as well as it should, considering a lot of... Uh, Universities have had a lot of COVID cases uh, uh, across America lately. And, you know, Concordia or at least the rest of Canada, we don't necessarily do that. We just do everything online. Uh, I think the difference in Canada is that, like, we don't have to pay $50,000. We just have to pay (laughs) a few thousand dollars less. So the value proposition is a lot different for us. And we're not as furious as, like, a college student in America. So these are all things I've been thinking about. That's true. That's true. No, that, 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 that's true. And, you know, the the problem is that, you know, in, in Canada, you know, well, the problem, the, the positive is that in Canada, you know, education is something that's accessible to everyone versus in the States, it's something that's only available to a certain amount and to certain few. You know, I think it's... Uh, unless you want to go into massive oh, I, debt. I, I, unless you go... No, but even if you go to massive debt, like it's, you know, is it really worth it at that point? Um, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to find the... The college cater? No, okay, I'm not, anyways, I'm not gonna find it now. But you know, the the amount of students that come from the top one percent outweigh the amount of students that come from the bottom forty percent in thir- in the thirty five top schools in the U.S. Yeah. That's a big problem because all of a sudden you have this type of caste system where you know the the wealthy can have access to the highest credentials, the highest education, the best experience, whereas the ones who aren't as well off don't have access to that. And that's exactly like one of the examples that Scott Galloway gives about Disneyland. I know this is something that, you know, you told me, Mark, you know, pay attention to I Disneyland this example yeah. because it's something that, because you really liked it. Would you like to kind of briefly explain what the Disneyland example is in you know, a few sentences? It's not too complicated, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly how he spoke about it, but essentially it's the difference between, um, I guess, Disneyland or Disney World is a big metaphor for how, like, the, the entire economy works or how, you know, the, 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 the big... Uh, difference between rich and poor so there is one way of going into disneyland and it's by paying the smallest uh, amount of dollars uh, the smallest fee to get into the park and in the park you know you could go ahead and like wait two hours to get on a ride um 119 dollars 119 for the day that's that's the small that's the smallest fee yeah, and then you get into the park and, and you, you know, you'll be able to get on to a few rides. You'll wait two, three hours per ride, whatever the case is. And that's like, you know, the very basic package. And then there's the other package. It's something like, you know, you'll get in for... 170. Sorry? 170. What's 170? The price for the, for the second package you're referring to. You mean the premium? That's less expensive than the basic. Yeah. You said one... No, so 100... No, no. 
$170. For the premium. I'm so and confused. 119. Okay, yeah, 119 versus because you said 190. I heard before. Oh, okay, no, no, 119. My bad, my bad. Okay, so just a clarification: 119 versus 170. So 170 is the premium package, and then you have a fast pass, and you can go ahead and skip the lines, skip all the quote-unquote poor people because you know you're rich and you can go ahead and just do all the rides in advance. And there's like this mini case system that exists in these parks. Because it's like, you know, a closed off economy. It's a closed off monopoly and Disney can control who does what based on how much money they make through that customer. Am I explaining mm-hmm. it well? So, so it's a, yeah, it's a caste system where, you know, if you're a bit more wealthy, you could cut the line and get in front. And imagine what's teaching, you know, what's teaching the, the kids who are there. Teaching that, you know, oh, you know, they're, they're not good enough or they're not worthy enough to get to the front of the line. Um, or that they're better than everyone else by by cutting the line. I think that's a bit of a problem. But you know, Disneyland can do whatever they want. They're they're not here to serve a social 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 purpose. They're not a charity. Um, but you know, that's kind of an issue as a metaphor for life. And let me just read this passage: A rich society should make it easier for the next generation to get ahead, not harder. A privileged few, a privileged few, are riding the Pirates of the Caribbean over and over, while the masses are standing outside in the sun waiting for a turn that may never come. And that's exactly what, you know, the Disneyland metaphor is, is that, you know, as the caste system, which is present in this in, in, in this theme park, is akin to what's in the real world, where, you know, the wealthy are, wealthy are able to get to the opportunities easier, quicker, um, in a way where it's almost assured, uh, whereas the, the ones who are waiting in line, you know, at the second tier, if you want, if you want to call mere mortals that, um, have to wait in line in the sun for an opportunity that may not occur. I think that's a problem in our society, and it's something that we have to, you know, teach the next generations and be conscious of. If ever, you know, we have the opportunity to be in the first first category, um, you know, to make to make the world a better place, and in order to to lift everyone else, lift the tide, lift everyone else up, make the ride more efficient versus just you know making a line for the wealthier. Yeah, and I know we have to wrap up, but I just want to mention one thing to your example right there. Uh, I think this current generation, our generation, is the first one that's going to have a harder life or make things harder income uh, through income, through the possessions we have, through like our possibilities in society compared to our parents. And a good example he gives yeah. is that Scott Galloway was able to go to UCLA and Berkeley, two of the top schools in America, off of like I think he had a 2.0 GPA and he got into Berkeley with a GPA like that uh, for his MBA and he was able to work at Morgan Stanley for two years before that and you know he was just a very average or you can even say below average with a GPA like that student and he was able to have all of those great opportunities whereas now with a 2.0 GPA you're not getting into UCLA let alone getting a chance even to you know work for one of the biggest banks in America that are probably recruiting at Harvard right now and getting the 4.0 GPA kids because it's a very valuable job in the future, right? And mm-hmm. that just goes with the, it goes with competition. It goes with the fact that a lot of things, or last example I want to give, uh, the average age uh, um, life, uh, what's it called? Lifelong. Average life expectancy. A life, life expectancy a- has, for the first time ever in 2019, started declining in the United States. That's insane. That's hmm. unheard of. In the richest country in the world, one of the most powerful countries in the world, with all the resources in the world, has the life expectancy of the average American declining. 
I think that's a, a really the the main example I could give that kind of like makes us realize how all of these things are shifting the the way things are being done in, the, yeah. in some of the biggest countries in the world. And I think that's a good way to end it. Unless Mark, you want to add something to that? No, I agree with you. I'm going to end with a quote actually from the book so that we, we end up on a better life. <laughs> Sorry, I, I made this, it I so dark. A... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, but, um, <laughs> but um, no, we'll, we'll end on a more positive note because, you know, you know, the next generation is going to be tasked with challenges that have never been, um, that have never, you know, tackled before been in the in the face of the earth mm-hmm. and and what he's saying here in, in the in the closing remarks are that pandemics wars depressions these shocks are painful but the times that follow are often among the most productive in human history the generation that endure and observe the pain are best prepared for the fight and yeah. i think if we take that statement and we take that mentality and say that you know when you hit rock bottom the only place you can go is up when we see all the pain and suffering and we see everything that's wrong in the world, we know that we can make a difference. We know we can make it better, whether that be in education, in this caste system, in having, in ha- if you have your own company, having more variable costs and you're able to pivot in a way where, um, where, where, where you could diminish your future sufferings and make you know, other people better off because we've seen what's so difficult, we have an incredible value and incredible opportunity going forward. So I think that's a very positive way of ending and saying that, you know, we had the roaring 20s after the, uh, you know, in the 20th century, we had the roaring 20s after, you know, the the World War and and which then led to the stock market crash, but whatever. We had the roaring 20s after the First World War and and, And and hopefully we'll have the roaring 2020s, the Spanish flu. That's exactly. Um, Hopefully we'll have a roaring 2020s after 2021. I don't know. But hopefully that's a a future that's going to be here for us and that's going to be awaiting us. Um, we're able to get through this as a community, all of us together. That's a great way to end the podcast. A lot more optimistic than what I said, but I completely <laughs> agree with every word you said there. And uh, with that, um, thank you all for listening to the Money Class Podcast. Uh, we'll see you guys next week with another episode. My name is Costa. This is Mark. And yeah, we'll see you guys. Bye, everyone. This has been episode 11 of the Money Class Podcast. If you liked the episode, make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast. We release a new episode every week. See you next week. Bye-bye.